Welcome to BIB Today, the podcast from the newsroom of business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and executive editor. Phil Arata has spent more than two decades in corporate leadership and consulting roles that have brought with them great challenges of transformation, whether it was at Best Buy Canada, the now defunct Future Shop, or as the CEO of Mountain Equipment Co-op. He began his career with Deloitte and McKinsey and Company with clients in industrial, telecommunications and financial services. He's now at Champlain Growth. I want to talk to him today about his leadership style, about risk-taking and about transformative uh, methods in advance of his Keystone Fireside chat that's coming on 17th of May at the Association for Corporate Growth, the annual Middle Market Growth Conference here in Vancouver. Good to see you. Great to see you. Thank you, Kirk. You know, you, uh, you seem to have a history, a pattern of, of, of risk-taking. Uh, did you grow up as one of those kids that climbed into trees and things? What started as a risk-taking thing for you? Yeah, far from it. I'd actually say I'm, I'm fairly risk averse, but uh, you can't control the economy or environment that you end up in. So, uh, no, I, I followed a very traditional background and, you know, generally thought I was playing it safe career wise. But, um, you know, after I left uh, McKinsey and joined Best Buy, uh, it was, a, again, transformational time in the industry. So two, I joined Best Buy in 2008. Uh, obviously, the economy got quite soft 2008, 2009. And so we had to rethink the business. Uh, we experienced some softness again in, in the mid 2010s, and that's when we made the tough decision to consolidate our brands and uh, yeah. really go from just having Best Buy and Future Shop to only Best Buy, and then uh, join Mountain Equipment Co-op because I just thought it was an iconic Canadian company that was in need of a turnaround, and I wanted to be part of that story. Uh, and then obviously COVID hit, so that changed our game plan a bit. And then mm -hmm. now uh, working in private equity of Champlain, and it's a new chapter, and and equally exciting. You know, um, how do people, I mean, how do you deal with risks though? I mean, do, you know, most people, when they see risk, uh, lean back. Do you, are you one of these lean in guys? I'd like to think so. I mean, I think uh, I like problem solving, I'd say is really what's uh, allowed mm -hmm. me to maybe take on some bigger challenges. So I think a lot of the opportunities that maybe some people look as, as risky or, uh, maybe de debatable moves on my end, it's really been calculated risk. And so I, I love doing analysis. I love doing problem solving. I love co solving complicated problems, which is probably why I started my career in consulting. And um, so when I look at it, it's it's really more of a calculated risk. Uh, COVID, COVID was an exception. Obviously, nobody saw that coming. That's an externality. And, and that mm -hmm. was a real tough problem to solve uh, while I was at MEC. But yeah, generally speaking, I like to think it's not just blind risk taking, it's calculated risk. Calculated risk, fair enough. But in the business leaders that I've talked to about risk over the years, uh, they they believe that they're a bit of a, a special breed, that this is not typically a Canadian thing to do. The Canadian executives like kind of a, a stability and a, a ground that they can step on properly uh, and, and all that. But you you know, you, you seem to have, you, you immersed yourself into this for quite some time in your career. I think a lot of the work that I've done and being transformational is is critical for organizations to be successful. Uh, you know, even if you look at the Future Shop operating model, it wasn't that Future Shop was an unsuccessful brand. It was known and beloved in Canada and had very high awareness, mm -hmm. but the operating model became less and less relevant. Uh, commission Salesforce was a little less relevant. E-commerce right. was becoming a bigger play. And so ultimately, had we just stayed the course, uh, the organization wouldn't have been successful. Uh, same thing when I joined MEC. MEC had a, a certain approach, really grew its assortment, opened a lot of stores, 
what maybe wasn't as disciplined from a capital perspective that it needed to be. And so by coming in and reinventing the organization and reshaping it, uh, allowed it to get back on solid footing. Uh, so I think, I'll, and even now in private equity, a lot of what we do is looking at companies and, and you have to see the art of the possible. If you just look at a company as is, um, you know, 99% of the time you might not invest, but if you find those gems and you say, hey, we do a couple of things right and, and take a couple of calculated bets, uh, we could really grow. And, and maybe that's why to your earlier point, Canadian companies, we don't have as many global international players. And, and the ones that do are the ones that took risk, whether you look at in Vancouver, Ritzia or Lululemon, now Herschel, you know, great, great brands, great companies that have taken some risks and spread their wings and are showing success, not just in Canada, but globally. Can you look back at each of these chapters, Phil, and talk about how each of them maybe um, shifted a little bit of your style of leadership? Like we, which, you know, which pieces came when along the way? For sure. Uh, when I was in management consulting, management consulting is very Cartesian in its approach. So you tend to look at, um, as much as we like to think it's a heterogeneous group, you know, they're all extremely smart people that you're hiring generally from the same schools. There's a very regimented path and there's a formula to be successful. And so I had the opportunity to work with really bright people who are extremely driven and uh, want to solve problems, are A-type personalities. And so as a leader, uh, it's really point the team in the right direction and they're going to be successful. Mm -hmm. By moving into industry, uh, and my first job in industry was with Best Buy, uh, obviously now you work with a more heterogeneous group. We had people who came up through stores, we had people who came up through corporate, we had people who uh, were highly educated uh, and came in you know, doing advanced degrees. And so really it gave me an opportunity to, to realize that uh, if you want to be a strong leader, you have to play to the strengths of everybody on your team. And so I think uh, as a leader, I, I changed my style and realized it's not a one size fits all model. Mm -hmm. And then as it became more senior and, and even taking on the CEO role at MEC, uh, I think you realize the importance of communications, rallying the team, get every, getting everybody behind a common theme or common message uh, is more and more important. And so uh, I think I took a more holistic view at things as I became a bit more mature and, and more seasoned in my career. And the other thing is, I think I became more patient uh, as, uh, you know, when yeah. you're coming out of school, you want to really hit everything on the head, go quickly, fix every problem overnight. Uh, okay. And over time, you realize that the, an organization has an absorption level and can only take so much change on at once. And so it's really about understanding that and pacing the organization so that you can be successful. You talked about the uh, externality of the pandemic, but uh, it's it would strike me that you would also likely have uh habits and patterns that actually don't pay a whole lot of attention to externalities that just keep the focus going on. What, what are your habits and patterns you see? Yeah, so professionally, communication for me is extremely important and having open communication with my team. I, I really uh, believe in non-hierarchical ways of leading. Uh, mm -hmm. I, when I was in did my MBA, I had a professor who was, uh, wrote a book about servant leadership and that really stuck with me. And so throughout my career, I've really been focused on that. And so mm -hmm. having a Monday meeting with the, my executive teams, uh, making sure that they're aware of everything happening, having a common set of metrics. So that's become an important habit. And I think it, people like being informed. They like being in the loop. They want to be successful. They want to solve problems. And so it's creating that opportunity in that space. And even today with one of our portfolio companies, I'm, I'm part of every Monday meeting and making sure that the team is aware of where we're at and where we need to go. Mm -hmm. uh, I think... Being non-hierarchical has been extremely important as a leader. If 
if you open up a discussion and you share a point of view, generally speaking, uh, the team will then agree with that point of view or support that point of view. And so making sure that I always let my team members share their opinion. So present a problem, hear their opinion before I ever share my opinion has been important and, and uh, allowed to be, be successful. And I think the other thing, which maybe is less of a habit, but uh, more of a management style has been understand where your team could take risks. I mean, there's certain times where a team member will come in and say, hey, I want to try this project. I want to try this initiative. And you realize the downside isn't that big and the upside's huge because even if they fail, they would have learned something. And so I've always uh, wanted my team to take, uh, be innovative, try new things, experiment and have a sense of ownership. That's really been critical. Yeah. I wonder, um, just thinking aloud and, and listening to your answer here, um, whether uh, sometimes with the C-suite background that you have, whether it becomes hard to, uh, to elicit uh, the advice and uh, to, to hear from people that they're, they're kind of expecting you to be the guy, you know, expecting you to be the one with the answers at all times. And, and I wonder, how, did you, how have you managed to ensure that you can listen? And not that, not that you don't, but that they at least speak, you know? Yeah, I, th I think a lot of it is creating the opportunity for and the space for people to share opinions. And so, uh, you know, one of the things I did as a leader and, and still to today is being humble, being down to earth, spending time uh, with folks in their place of work as opposed to people coming to you. So my one-on-one -on -one meetings with my direct report team, I would always do in their office versus my office. Uh, spent a lot of time, whether it be in stores or in warehouses, uh, still to today, Actually, all the executive team meetings I do with one of our portfolio companies actually in their warehouse. And so mm -hmm. by walking through the warehouse and talking to folks, you get a sense of what's going on. And, and people that also develop a comfort with you. And so as people feel more comfortable with you and you build a rapport and you spend time chatting with folks, then naturally they're willing to come to you with ideas and suggestions. And I think it casts, so it snowballs when you implement those ideas. So when people see that, hey, I shared a thought, I shared a perspective, and the person came back to me either saying, yeah, we tried that. That was great. Or, hey, this is the reason why we can't do that. People then feel that, okay, I didn't just speak into the ether, but rather those thoughts or those opinions are heard. And so I think those are all important ways by which you can uh, elicit input and ideas from your team. Do you have a particular style in dealing with a really bad idea? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... I think it's explaining to the, I would try and explain to the person why it might not be successful. So I think it's less about saying, wow, you know, that idea is really not going to work for the company or, but it might be more along the lines of, okay, well, I understand your idea. Here are the challenges associated with it. And typically when you walk somebody through the challenges that they might not have seen, and usually it's blind spots, why they didn't see it. Not because, you know, they knowingly share a bad idea. Uh, again, it's an, an opportunity for education. People say, oh, yeah, okay, I didn't think about that tax implication because I wasn't exposed to that, or I didn't think about the logistics implications because, you know, I've never visited the warehouse. Uh, so, uh, generally, yeah, 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 because you want them to come back, right? You want them to, exactly. you, you know, they're going to have good ideas. Not all of them will be bad. Um, exactly. But, but having said that, I mean, you sound uh, pretty selfless and humble about all of this, but you've had to bet on yourself many times. Um, how, do you, how do you do both? Yeah, I think um, having confidence in oneself is extremely important. And uh, knowing that, you know, generally speaking, if I, 
if you've got the controllables and that you do the right things and you demonstrate a track record of being on top of things, working really hard, being diligent, then things will pay off. And so uh, for me, you know, when I went from McKinsey to Best Buy, I took a step back from a seniority perspective. And, but again, it was one of those where I said, you know what, like, I think I could go in, I could do a good job. I could prove myself to the team. And mm-hmm. uh, by working really hard, I think things will pay off. And it, and it did, you know, I, I ended up making great relationships, meeting really nice people, and then working on some important projects. And as you deliver those projects, uh, I think the expression is, if, if you need something done, give it to the busiest person on the team. Uh, and I think there's some truth to that. So as you continue mm-hmm. to demonstrate success and demonstrate work ethic and demonstrate teamwork, then you get more and more opportunities. And so throughout my career, that's been a theme. Yeah, but if you're the busiest person, at some point you have to learn how to say no. How do you say no? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there's uh, the way I've looked at my career personally is there's ebbs and flows, and there's periods where you're going to double down and you're going to work extremely hard in huge hours and maybe in an unsustainable way. But then mm-hmm. you also know that there's times where you need to recharge. So you know, and speaking about habits, maybe they're less professional habits, but personal habits. I always try and take time for myself in the morning. So generally speaking, I always do some type of activity physical activity every morning, whether it's go for a run or go for a bike ride or mm-hmm. um, might go to the gym, but always try and find time for myself every morning because I find it centers you, makes you feel like you've accomplished something and it keeps you healthy. And then uh, and then there's periods in my career where I know like, geez, I'm, I'm probably a little bit overloaded here, but uh, it's temporary. And so for me, that's that's been the theme is there's periods where I know I'm going to go really heavy. Uh, and there's other times where I know there'll be a natural downturn because every business has a, an annual cycle and there's times where there's just a lot going on and there's other times where, you know, maybe there's just less fewer people around or because of the cycle of your customer base, there might be a bit more of a down period. And so I generally try and play upon those to get those periods of recovery. I talked to a CEO last week who shall remain nameless, but um, he had uh, gone through an extremely large ordeal and um, and I could see that he wasn't taking care of himself. I mean, and he, he wanted to talk about that, he, he, how important it was, how he was yearning to get back to that because it was going to make him uh, a much more complete uh, participant and leader. And, um, and you know, it's, it's surprising to me how many CEOs, though, do find that time. Like, they, they, they make it very important. And you as a, a business leader and as somebody now in private equity, you, you even need to demonstrate that uh, to, you know, to, to the, uh, uh, you know, the organizations that you're now dealing with. Um, can you talk a bit about, because everyone has a story about how the pandemic reshaped them a bit. Um, is there a leadership style shift of some sort that the pandemic brought on with you? I, th- I think in, I don't know if this is another expression, but I think in times of crisis, your true colors shine. And so for me, uh, what I always told my teams is I'm going to be as open and honest with you as humanly possible. Obviously, there's some things that you have to keep to yourself, but generally speaking, uh, I wanted to always be clear and transparent. For me, from a, a working style perspective, obviously, working remote is something that was very new to me. I was one of those leaders who really felt employees need to be in the office. We need to be together. Um, and so working remotely and seeing that happen efficiently and obviously tools have, have advanced to the point that they, they are significantly better. But I think the other piece was um, I was at MEC during a period where we were going through a refinancing, credit markets tightened up. Uh, and yeah. so we were really in a tough spot and going through a tough process. And every day I actually did a town hall. So every morning we had a meeting and all staff could join. And if they couldn't, we recorded it on Teams and 
people were able to see it. And I was as open and honest about that process and where we were and what the challenges were that we were facing. And, and it was nice to get, you know, folks who really appreciated the open communication. I did things like, um, office hours. So I just created an Excel spreadsheet with a calendar and said, Hey, I'm blocking off my calendar. And if you want to just pop in on a virtual meeting, because I wasn't having those informal hallway conversations as much. Uh, you tend to be far more regimented when you're remote. I've got this meeting followed by that meeting followed by that meeting. And so trying to create space for that was important. Uh, but ultimately I think it allowed to be me to be more of me. Um, you know, we would play a little song before we would start each one of these team meetings. And, you know, we'd have my daughter and I on dancing and things like that. And so I think people see the maybe the soft side of you as well, uh, that sometimes in the more professional workplace, folks don't get to see the side of their leaders as often. So I think that was really important that sharing more about myself. Um, I've always been somebody who might hold back a little bit when it comes to, hey, what's going on in my personal life? or What's going on with my kids or how's my dad's health or whatever it might be. And uh, I think the pandemic it was important to be human. And, and actually, in, in my case, my uh, uh, my wife lost her uncle. He was uh, uh, a doctor and uh, he passed away of COVID very early on when, you know, we still didn't know what was going on. Uh, so mm. he was in the hospital, he got COVID and he didn't make it. And I think people knowing that story and then humanizing yourself becomes extremely important. So I think now maybe my guard's a little bit down further than it was uh, prior to yeah. COVID. And, and hopefully that makes me more approachable. But I know for me, and we talked about physical health, mental health is super important as well. And, you know, back when I was a consultant in the late nineties, you know, you just worked really hard. And if you had a bad day, then you came back to work next day and you worked really hard and you didn't express that. And I'm happy that now people could talk about mental health and challenges and I need a break and, you know, here's what I'm experiencing. And I think uh, that's something that the pandemic certainly opened up for myself. I, I think the pandemic has uh, humanized and, and made everybody um, properly vulnerable, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. been very good for us. Tell me though, I mean, it, it sounds, I think you've almost answered this. Um, tell me though what you learned about yourself out of all of this. I mean, you talked about what you display to others. You know, you brought this out, but what did you learn about yourself? I think the biggest thing is that I can't, you can't control your environment. I, I think the pandemic was the best example where I would sit down and I spoke, there was one board member with whom I, I spoke to frequently and I would tell them, you know what, I just can't solve this problem. I can't, I can't figure out how we could get the financing online. I can't figure out how we could get our stores open. I can't figure out how we could get our sales, you know, back to pre. And you come to realize like, well, wait a second. I mean, there's some stuff you just can't do, right? So you can, all you could do is focus on what you could control, but there's some uncontrollables. The environment is bigger than you. And so I think for me, it's, it helped me realize that, you know, as much as I want to try and be successful and I want to assert an outcome, uh, all you could do is, do the right steps, uh, do your best. And, you know, sometimes the, the outcome you control. So I read somewhere it's like, you know, the executives control 30% of the outcome and the industry and the environment and the economy controls the other 70%. So I think it's control what you can control, but uh, don't beat yourself up if the outcome isn't the outcome that you're naturally hoping for. It sounds like you're very comfortable with that position that, that you don't feel like somehow you're, you're compromised out of that position. But, you know, a, a little while back, as you say, that would have been a, a you know, a, a cause for concern for a company that had a leader that, you know, that, that wasn't, you know, prepared to be dominant and, and believe that had all, had all the answers and was going to fix all the problems and solve all the questions that are necessary. You know, it, it sounds like you've got 
you also became a lot more comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, absolutely. Because as a, you know, somebody out of school, I certainly felt I had all the answers. And if I do the right thing, then I'll have the outcome I want and I could control everything. And I think, you know, with age and maturity and experience and going through a number of different economic cycles and now living through hopefully what was a once in a lifetime pandemic, you realize like, actually, there's a lot of things that I can't control. So it's about being in the moment, doing everything the best you can, garnering as much input as you can. And oftentimes I would speak to other executives and just say, hey, you know what? How would you look at this problem? I, I can't quite figure this out. How, how would you approach this? Come play devil's advocate. I think oftentimes when you tell uh, people on your team to be devil's advocate, now you're giving them the right to actually push back and tell you you're wrong. And so it creates a sense of comfort in, okay, well, sure, I'll poke holes in things. And so, um, you know, certainly that was something that I've learned over time that, you know, you could just control what you can control, but the larger environment, economy, uh, you can't control those. So all you can do is the best you can to navigate the environment that you've been handed. Last uh, area I want to explore because, you know, you've moved into private equity and I want to know how it is that you took the skill sets that you believe you, you garnered in all those years um, in, in a C-suite situation, and obviously the consultancy before that. But I want to, want to know how you then feel you're applying that skill set today um, to those that you have to deal with in, in the private equity world. Uh, and in a lot of ways, what, what you're hoping they learn from you. Yeah, um, so I think obviously um, my background maybe isn't as typical as to how people get into private equity. Typically people start through investment banking or other financial services. Um, but that being said, I, I had a career in finance. So when I look at my career and how I came up to the C-level, it was really down a finance path. So I, I do have a finance skill set and I love finance. So that, that, that's always been one of my passions professionally. And so going into private equity, obviously I leverage a lot of my finance abilities and going through spreadsheets and models and data, forecasts, all that good stuff. But at the same time, I have an operations background, uh, which allows me to understand, well, what's it like at the operational level? How, what does it mean to implement this initiative? Um, how quickly can this get done? What is an organization's absorption capacity for new work? And so I think that that combination uh, really allows me to uh, add a, maybe have a bit of a secret sauce or add maybe a little bit more perspective when we meet with companies. So it's nice meeting with entrepreneurs and business owners because I can relate to them and have conversations that are very much where I could put myself in their shoes or say, hey, I've been in your shoes, I've lived through this and, and here's my experience. And so those tend to be good conversations. And then in thinking about business growth, being aggressive but at the same time, realistic and understanding the challenges our executives have whether it be in recruiting or business development or driving new initiatives. And so I think that uh, by bringing both sides of the coin, I, I think it our business owners and leaders and value it. And then when evaluating businesses, I think I had another perspective because it's not just about the numbers, but maybe you can understand the leadership team. You can understand some of the challenges they might have, or you could come up with some opportunity areas that maybe they didn't think of. Yeah. Well, you've been in that corner office, right? Uh, you, you know, that, that helps. A lot of people wouldn't have been in that space before. So it's good. Listen, uh, best luck uh, for uh, your, your talk on the 17th of May. And uh, it's been really a pleasure talking to you. You've had a great career and, and uh, you know, you've got lots of chapters ahead of you. Thanks a lot for your time today, Phil. Thank you, Kirk. It was a pleasure. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and executive editor of BIV. Thanks a lot for watching.